Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So today we're going to practice uh, with the area of right speech. And some of you may be tired of talking already. Uh, I'm a little tired of talking. So I'm actually going to make you do a lot of work today. So I think that many of you have actually uh, experienced with this area. And uh, I want to ask you first if you know... What are the four areas that Buddha said as recommendations around right speech? So raise your hand if you know one of them. This is like a game show. Four top answers. Yeah. Should be true. Should be true, yep. So avoid false speech. Yep. Yeah. Timely. Timely, yep. So not only true, but actually if you speak the truth, say it at the right time. Yep. Avoid idle chatter. Avoid idle chatter, yes. Avoid idle chatter. Yep. Avoid harsh speech. Yep. Avoid harsh slash abusive speech. Yeah. Um, avoid slander speech. Yes. Avoid slander slash gossip. Excellent. You got all the top answers. Right. Anything else? Yeah. So he, he mainly said that the ones about... Uh, Avoiding this, avoiding that, right? And I had mentioned before that a lot of the precepts and actually a lot of the teachings in this area are articulated around, you know, avoid this, like abstain from blank, right? And sometimes it seems curious that they were stated in the negative like that, right? Like it seems like, oh, is that just more pessimistic kind of thing, (laughs) framing of things? I think it actually is because it's uh, pointing to the fact that at bottom, we have a certain purity of heart and mind. We actually have a purity of consciousness, purity of heart and mind. And we're visited by these uh, kilesas, this greed, hatred, delusion, right? These are like temporary visitors that cloud our consciousness. So actually, if we're able to avoid the following things, then whatever naturally can come forward will be good. So particularly avoid these areas of speaking what is false. Right? So that first one, really, uh, big emphasis on that, and that's one that's uh, common to most spiritual traditions, right? It's hard to find a legitimate spiritual tradition that does not endorse that right, as a main uh, tenet of speech. So to me, this is partly because uh, the Dhamma itself means the truth, so if you actually want to live in accordance with the truth, then that includes what you speak. So you have to speak the truth. And the Buddha, uh, in the stories of his past lives, had at one point um, sort of decided, taken the vow that he wanted to become a Buddha. So at some point. And then during all those past lives, once he declared that, he was born into all these different circumstances, as people, as animals, like all different beings, And he kind of went through uh, this long series of basically 
character development, right? in which he was tested, he was tried, he made mistakes, he learned things, etc., etc. He was born as uh, you know different kinds of animals and different kinds of people and stuff like that. But apparently, he said that once he took the vow that he wanted to become the Buddha, that he wanted to be this uh, enlightened teacher. Uh, the one precept that he never broke was actually to tell a lie. So from that time on, in all the different lives, in all the different animal lives and people lives and so on, uh, he held to the truth you know, as this central uh, tenet. So um, those of you who read the uh, account in the Bhikkhu Bodhi book also read the account of him teaching his son, right, Rahula. So Rahula was his small son who also actually um, ordained. And there's some very sweet accounts of the Buddha teaching his son. And in this one teaching, he's telling uh, Rahula about the importance of uh, speaking the truth. clipped it to the wrong thing. So he used a visual aid. So he had a bowl full of water. Still use this cup full of water here. Uh, although it has a little bit of water only. So. I'll drink this down. Okay, so a little bit of water. So he said, Rahula, do you see this little bit of water left in this bowl? Yes, yes. So Rahula is the spiritual achievement of one who is not afraid to speak a deliberate lie, just a little bit. Right? Then he throws the water away. So I won't throw it away, I'll drink it. And then he puts the bowl upside down. Let me make sure I finish this now. And he says, Do you see, Rahula, how this water has been discarded? So in the same way, one who tells a deliberate lie discards whatever spiritual achievement they have made. And then he goes on, he says, do you see how this bowl is now empty? So in the same way, one who has no shame in speaking lies is empty of spiritual achievement. And do you see how this bowl has been turned upside down? So in the same way, someone who tells a deliberate lie turns his spiritual achievements upside down and becomes incapable of progress. So therefore, he tells uh, his Rahula, one should never speak a deliberate lie, even if in jest. So even if you're kidding, he says, uh, don't tell a lie. Now this is kind of countercultural. Uh, you know, even in our American culture right now, there's a lot of jokes that start with someone like saying something and then just saying like, oh, just kidding, right? <clears throat> and. Uh, the Buddha is very clear about this, right? Like, if you want to be someone who is aligned with the truth, then you need to be aligned with the truth, right? In your actions, in your speech. Uh, so don't do this deliberately. You know, take a resolve not to do this deliberately. Right? So why do you think he says this? Like, what, what is the, uh, what's the importance of that? Like, why wouldn't it be okay to just say something and then be like, oh, just kidding? So, yeah. about how um, 
mistruths or slander kind of cause division and cause uncertainty mm -hmm. where we need certainty and unity. Right. Uh, and that that being kind of one strategic reason why. Yeah, that uh, mistruths and slander they cause uncertainty. They cause people to not feel like they can trust you fully. And uh, yeah. Sometimes when people say just kidding, they aren't really just kidding. Mm. Right. 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 Yeah. Sometimes only after they see that it hasn't landed, they say "just kidding" to sort of cover up or something like that. Or yeah. So yeah, it throws you off base like that. You don't know what to trust from that. Yeah. You're not practicing staying in connection with what is true. Right? That you're not practicing staying in connection with what is true. Yeah. So does this include fiction, like these two ducks walk into a bar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? That's a good question. Does it include fiction, like these two ducks walk into a bar? I think it's like a deliberate lie. So if, uh, if in telling that story people think that you actually saw the ducks walk into the bar and you did not, well, then there's one. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but it's, it seems like it's, uh, it would seem to me like if it is understood that it's a fictional story ahead of time, then it's not lie if it's understood but if you're passing it off as the truth deliberately and it's not you know it's not true then it's a problem but this is an area for exploration what do you think yeah this is actually something i've been struggling with recently because um, we've been getting all kinds of children's books and i found that i really have a problem with many of them that are like super fantasy and kind of talking horses and all kinds of strange things that like like, as an adult, I can recognize, oh, it's an allegory, et cetera, et cetera. But for a small child, it'd be kind of really strange that, you know, there are these talking animals. And, um, and so I found myself leaning towards children's books that are kind of grounded in reality of some sort. Mm -hmm. And it can be a very simplified version of reality, but it's still kind of true. Mm -hmm. um, so not that it's a lie, but it's just that it would be confusing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To me, the um, underlying thing that I, that I would want to look at is the intention. Right. <clears throat> um, you know, if the intention is to employ imagination, like perhaps some of the children's books, um, but to have an overall wholesome message, then that's a different intention from, you know, creating some being that's going to get you if you don't behave. You know, that's not a wholesome intention. Right. And I think that's an important point that you point to because it's about intention, really. So also, if you say something that you think is true, but then it turns out it's not true, that's not actually the same as deliberately lying. Right? And with, with any of these, like with false speech for oneself, it's always good to look at, like, why am I doing this? Right? Like, why, why did I actually tell that lie? So it's good to, to attend to this in your life, even you know, here and now since we're talking to each other a little bit. And um, you know, there are different shades of truth that we can tell. Right? So like if there's even any way in which you're shading the truth about something that happened or about yourself, or you know, even exaggeration is some form of this. Right? Like exaggeration um, often to create bigger effect or like to make a story funnier or to make it seem like... Uh, 
is more dramatic or something like that. You know, take a, take a good look at the intention in your own heart, like as you're telling that story, as you're telling that lie, right? Like, what is it? And some of them we wouldn't even call lies. We would just be like, oh, it's just, you know. But, but it is actually, if you know it's not true. So also one thing to look at here is uh, um, some variation on um, what Temple is talking about in the Four Noble Truths of uh, Tanha, of craving. So you have your garden variety craving of craving for sensual pleasures. And then there's um, uh, two other kinds of craving that the Buddha talks about. So one is a craving for becoming. And so this is like, uh, oftentimes the creation of self is some version of this craving for becoming. You know, it's like, who do I want to be? Who do I want to project who do I want to be in my own mind or who do I want other people to think that I am? Right. So take a look at the patterns of our speech and like how much of them actually are to reinforce some sense of projected self right, that comes out. And if there's any motivation to tell a lie or if you find that like you have told a lie, just take it as like an interesting learning thing. You know, like take a look at like, oh, why did I do that? Like what was that about? What was, what was like going through my heart at that time? What was the intended effect? You know, reflecting on it like that. So it's interesting. I mean, the, 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 uh, here's where, you know, it is, it is right speech, but also it's kind of like aligned speech, particularly around this one, you know, aligned speech, aligned with the truth. And so until we're actually completely enlightened, there's ways in which we're going to be like a little off base in some way or another, right? So don't be surprised when that happens. Be interested when that happens. Right? Like, get interested in that. Be curious about it. And take that as just like a way to learn. And also, you know, like I mentioned, to actually sort of be humbled by the delusion. <laughs> you know? I think this is one of my favorite things lately because I just went on retreat for a couple of weeks. So I was able to be humbled by delusion plenty. So see into this more. But, you know, it's, it's really good to see, like, wow, these patterns of behavior, these patterns of intention that arise... And it happens so fast, right? It happens so fast with speech, you know, that uh, oftentimes it's out of our mouth before we even consider it. So it's very interesting, this area of speech, too. Yeah? I wanted to um, comment on and maybe get your take or other people's take on something that Bhikkhu Bodhi said about the um, false speech based on an intention to deceive based on greed or personal, the desire for personal advantage and the desire for, for hatred, the desire to hurt or damage. Then he says that when delusion is the principal motive, the result is a less pernicious type of falsehood. And a lot of that is what we've been talking about, the irrational lie, the compulsive lie, interesting exaggeration, sake for joke. And I thought about um, the damage that is done um, that's based on delusion in intimate relationships. And so I, I would kind of take issue with Bhikkhu Bodhi here. I don't think it's less pernicious. I think it's every bit as pernicious that the delusional lie may not be intended. Often they're not intended to cause damage. They're not caused by um, the desire for greed um, or for personal gain. They're not even motivated by lust. It's just delusion <laughs> of this fantasy of who you think the other person is, who you think you are. Um, it, it happens a lot in intimate relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, intimate relationships is a good place to see a lot of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have some problems with truth. Mm-hmm. Um, Santa Claus, uh-huh. 
I raised my kids believing in Santa Claus, and it's kind of a rite of passage to suddenly realize that this is a trick. But it's a lie, absolutely. Uh, if, if you're married to someone who puts on a new suit or a new dress and says, how does this look on me, honey? Do you tell the truth? I hope not. So it's not so, you know, it's, it sounds pretty tight the way he presents it, but the right. reality is there's a lot of gray in there. And I guess a lot of it's intention. What's the intention here? Correct. To avoid harming someone, in the case of a husband or a wife, or getting yourself killed, I suppose. Even. But yeah, so, so the, they're both interesting examples that you give. So the first sort of Santa Claus one. So most parents who propagate that um, have some positive intention, right, of sort of creating the magic of Christmas, etc. But then I think it is true that suddenly when the, when the kids realize, like, it's not true, it does perhaps make them think, like, oh, what else is not true, you know? There actually is, is some joke I remember about this where the kid finds out Santa Claus is not true and then says, like, well, what about the Easter bunny? You know, and then they're like, nope. And then they're like, what about the tooth fairy? Like, nope. And then they're like, what about God? You know, like, what about the principal? What, you know, it's just like, what, what about everything, right? Like that. So that being said, like, um, I do think that there's something about the human psyche that, um, like, storytelling is sort of an important part of how we learn. So if it's clear, like, oh, these are stories, like, there is a way in which mythologies, uh, mythologies in which they teach values, actually, and um, sort of help people to grapple with understanding or learn, like, can be a, a positive vehicle for learning and growth, right? That's sort of my own take based on my own study in anthropology and so on. But it's, it's different than sort of intending to tell someone a lie about something and then um, fooling them about it. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's difficult for kids when they find that their parents have lied to them about something. Now, with the Santa Claus thing, usually it's like when they get to a certain age, and then sometimes they realize sort of what the whole scenario is around that, and that's like a different story than something else. But uh, other ways in which uh, kids find that their parents have lied to them, I think can be like damaging to their sense of trust, right? Or I know that... Um, for myself, I've had the experience of, um, with a teacher also sitting in retreat, and then uh, if the teacher says something from the teaching seat and then says, like, oh, just kidding. Like, I've noticed in that space myself then being, like, slightly just, like, off balance. And then whenever they say something, like, there's a little part of me that's waiting for the other shoe to drop, like, oh, are they going to say just kidding? Is it, is it just kidding this time, or is it really true? Right. And it's kind of, you know, it's, it's not maybe such a big deal, but it does actually have some effect. Right? So I aspire not to do that. And also, I might do that sometimes, based on my own delusion. Right? So it's like, okay, then see if that happens. Like, what's going on there? What was the reason for that? Where did that come from? Yeah. So, um, the second one you said, oh, spouse, right? So someone asks you a question, like, do you like my hair, dress, etc.? Right? So, you know, the, but that's, it say, say what's true, but only when it's useful and non-harming <laughs> and at the right time <laughs> and when it brings people together as opposed to destroys or breaks things up. So, you know, when you apply all those rules, then uh, you could say something tactful, I think, or, you know, <laughs> be skillful about it. Yeah. And then it's a 
practice almost, and it's almost very easy to keep telling lies, and then you even believe the lie. Yes. So it's very tricky, then, then everything can be a lie or truth, and, and you get mixed up and confused more in your life. Yes, yeah. So she's describing like if you tell a lie, and then like sometimes you have to cover that with another lie, and then another lie, and then like sometimes you start to believe the lie too, and yeah, there's this sort of web of lies that has to be propped up, and uh, uh, it's true, it's like this web of deceit that happens, and sometimes, you know, if someone didn't mean to do that with just telling one lie, they just thought, oh, I'll get away with telling this one thing, but then in order to support that, there's something else and something else, and then it's like, it is like spinning the web of delusion, you know, it's like... Uh, supporting that. Uh, yeah. When you talk about delusion, to me that's a lot of self-deception. Um, I, for me, I know for a long time I lived in a very in a self-deceiving relationship. And at some level I knew this happened, but I refused to acknowledge it. And then uh, as time grew on, as time went on, I continued to work around that. And so finally I said, look, you know, this is self-deception. You're deluding yourself. There is stuff about this relationship that just is not working. And I started to really work on the issues that weren't working rather than deluding myself and continuing to deceive myself that they would oh, all of a sudden magically go away. I think that when we talk about delusion, mostly I see it in myself as a self-deception about something. Not wanting to know something, being ignorant and not willing to find out what it's all about. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, you ask in a relationship about delusion. Two people are in a relationship and they're deceiving each other and themselves. Yeah, there's a deluding, deluding of yourself as well as the other person in that in that moment. Yeah, yeah. So then, uh, then we have the other um, dimensions you mentioned. So there's the gossip slander. So, uh, what's wrong with gossip and slander? Anyone who hasn't spoken, yeah. I thought it was very interesting that it almost seemed, in the way Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote it, that slander is almost as bad as you can get. Uh-huh. Because it's rooted in, it's premeditated, it comes from hatred, it has a destructive goal. Um, I mean, killing someone's probably worse, but it seems that like slander is pretty much as bad as it gets. Probably. In the verbal area, yeah. it's always been considered a highly destructive behavior socially um, and that's probably why all the major religions have, uh, have, have precepts against it in Buddhism in the family faiths or belief systems are uh, very very strictly against it right uh, I think it's, it's interesting because we use the word gossip in our society and it's kind of a casual term so it sounds kind of weird that gossip is considered a very bad idea Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that the slander one is like um, oftentimes rooted in the sense of self. It's like putting down someone else. Uh, and usually when you have someone else to put down, you're, of course, putting yourself up in some way, right? So it's like, oh, that person's bad and I am good, <laughs> right? Uh, it's like creating some contrast like that. The gossip one, I feel like, is also connected somewhat with the idle chatter thing, too. Right? Because uh, sometimes it's about other people who you don't know, and it's not even necessarily about yourself versus the others, but it's just a sort of like blabbing on kind of thing. And here again, it's like following these teachings is going against the stream of society. Because right? there's really huge industries built up around this, you know, like magazines, whole magazines devoted to, right? And TV channels and... Uh, <laughs> Politics, websites—you know, all different things. So, uh, yeah. I think that slander and gossip are both very divisive. They separate rather than unite. And I think that that's one of the critical components of it. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, divisive. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a tricky one because, like, I would rather not gossip, but like some sometimes in cases like the workplace, for example. I worked in many like restaurants and coffee shops and like that's how people bond together a lot within the work environment. And I'm sure in offices it's the same. And I'm not saying that I love this is how I would choose to create like bonds with people, but I feel like often when I try to not engage in that and keep to myself, then you become people kind of like sometimes misinterpreted. I mean, not that I care ultimately, but you know what I mean? It's like, right. it is divisive, but it's sadly also a way to, sort, not, in a, not even if it's like a really harsh gossip, but just a way to just kind of like talk and start talking, you know, and getting to know each other. I don't, I'm not sure. I think it's a tricky one in the real, real world. Yeah, I think this is also where like delusion plays out for where it seems like a way to connect to each other, which I think is what you're pointing out. Like in some workplaces, that's sort of the culture. It's like, oh, we will connect to each other by talking about these other people, right? Well, yeah, yes. I mean, it's not, it's not even articulated as clearly as that, right? But it's kind of like that, right? And it's, it's quite common, right? So, and then also what you're describing is that it's, then it's a kind of a dilemma for you because like, oh, you don't want to, is it like, oh, I'm better than this or I'm, you know, holding yourself apart from it. So here's where like as a practitioner... Uh, we had to be like kind of creative and also true to ourselves, right? So knowing what the effect is on yourself and on others of kind of behavior. So then like, is there some other way of creating connection with people uh, different than this? And having worked with people in like daily life practice a lot, I know people have um, tried like different experiments of this and and I have myself also like, um, like, sometimes you can just totally change the conversation. Like sometimes people don't know like how else to connect to each other, but this sort of gossipy way. But you could actually uh, kind of try to change the conversation or just inject something else that's like a more positive kind of uh, topic. And sometimes people will actually like pick that up. Like, you know, people can kind of feel like, oh, that is a better way to go, you know. Uh, Sometimes they don't, but, (laughs) but sometimes they do, right? And so then, in some ways, like, you can actually have some kind of leadership, you know, of changing the tone of the way things are there, right? And particularly, like, it's one thing if it's gossip about, um, you know, movie stars and people like that, then maybe it's a little bit more in the idle chatter-ish category. Um, 
unless you're in the movie industry too, but a lot of like if it's gossip about people in your field or friends or something like that, um, you know, it's easy to extrapolate like how would I feel if these people are talking about me, right? Or like if I found out like oh, if they're talking about this person like that, I could be next. Like one day I'm sick from work and then people talk about me like that, right? Like it creates an environment of just a erosion of trust also, I think, in some way. So, yeah. I think even with something like that, it's like, yeah, there are, there are situations in which you have to tell a truth that's unpleasant. Or, you know, like the, the broad um, suggestion is not to, to speak in a way that sort of destroys the community or the family, right? That doesn't create disharmony. But at the same time, if something is actually happening that is uh, disharmonious, that is like unethical in an environment, then you do need to address that. But then the question is how, Right. So like sort of the water cooler chit-chat about it is not directly addressing it. But if there's some other channel to either directly address it with the person or, you know, I don't know, whatever it seems more appropriate, like HR person or that person themselves, you know, to ask them about it. Like that seems different than to sort of talk to other people about it, isn't it? Like in some way. But each situation is like complex to figure out like, well, what's the, what's the appropriate thing to do here? So that's why you get like these these recommendations around this, but then a lot of it is for us to become aware of like what is the intention in our own mind and heart that's arising around this. So uh, so we have to be uh, attuned to like well, what seems like appropriate action in this case, you know. And sometimes here's where it helps to like to sit to sort of settle your mind and heart, and then like try to assess what seems like a correct action, and then you can sort of notice as you're motivated by different things, it's like, oh, I should, I should just tell a bunch of people. And then it's like, oh, that doesn't feel good. And it's like, oh, I should go and talk to that person directly. And then it's like, oh, that f- I have fear. With, you know, then you sort of like look at the different things that are options and stuff like that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because I do feel that I make a connection with idle chit chat. I, I develop a relationship and I develop rapport and I develop a you know, connection. Right. And that's the, that to me is a building block of creating a relationship and creating connectivity. Yeah, so I think Emma was saying about like the gospel is mostly about people, right? That you were talking about? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's true. Trees probably are like outside the book. You could probably talk about trees, okay, right? <laughs> um, but that brings us to that point of the idle chatter one, right? Um, which is number four. So actually, before we get to that one, I'll, I'll bring in the third one, which is about the abusive, harsh speech. So that one seems more obvious, but what's the problem with abusive and harsh speech? Yeah. Well, of course it's very damaging. It could actually 
cause people to do harm to themselves or to harm to others. But what's really, really disturbing to me, and we're all talking here about verbal speech, yeah. what's really disturbing to me is how social networks are used to perpetrate wrong speech, perpetrate gossip, slander. And the thing that's the most disturbing is that you can do this anonymously. Right. And nobody knows who you are. You just rant on and rave on about anybody. And that in itself to me is pretty scary when it gets to that level where people are just anonymously, you know, slashing across the whole universe with their awful, awful diatribe. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And uh, so the Buddha, Buddha's time, of course, there was not the internet. <laughs> so uh, you know, most of this is uh, is addressed to verbal speech, which was there in common. Uh, but now we have, can apply all of this actually to also uh, written speech communication that goes out, uh, including on email and so on. And. Uh, it's good to pay attention to that too because it's actually so quick how these things happen. You know, and uh, here's where the save draft uh, section is very good for you in your emails and so on, right? Uh, to write something and then save it and then see, you know, or to try to notice your intention before you uh, put something out there, right? As you write it and see, right? So yeah, harsh and abusive speech does hurt. You know, it hurts um, when someone says something to us and um, you can definitely see, like, little kids get hurt, right? If someone speaks to them harshly, like, they'll just start to cry, you know? Like, no bones about it, just, like, immediately cry, right? And as grown-ups, it's like, we actually get hurt like that, too, even though we've, like, learned to not cry like that immediately, but we're really actually very vulnerable, too. You know, if someone says something really mean or hurtful, and then similar, actually, getting something written, that's, that's difficult, Right? Like, we, we actually are very vulnerable beings, and uh, we can be harmed. So someone said, you know, that the tongue is like a, it's a um, weapon in the mouth. You know, it can be used to harm or to heal, right? So, yeah. Uh, one of the things that I, I struggle with in the workplace is being witness to abusive, harsh speech. Um, the work I do, we're supposed to be helping people. And I have colleagues that can be very abusive and very harsh, and how they speak to, to our clients, and our clients are often um, have a lot of challenges, and so they're they're very intimidated, and um, I've not known how to respond in the face of it. Yeah. So witnessing harsh speech that someone else is uh, perpetrating. Yeah. It's it's good to notice that, and like you can see then, like oh, this is actually very painful. Like it's very clear, right? Um, and in different cases, it's like you do the best that you can in intervention, depending on so many different factors, including sort of like your position in there in the moment and how much power you have to affect and so on, right? Um, I actually have worked as a, a consultant with organizations and including some in which they have uh, tried to figure out like what's a way to intervene in something like this. And it was interesting to ask people, you know, we did a survey with the staff, like what would you do if you saw a colleague uh, 
interacting with a client in a way that you felt like was inappropriate. So it could be harsh speech or rude or something like that, right? And actually, um, everyone said different things. Like, the answers ranged from, um, I would do nothing. I would confront the person right then and there. I would go and tell the person's supervisor. Um, I would go and yell at the person. You know, there was like, it was really like across the board. And so part of what that um, showed is like, there's not even a shared understanding about uh, how this should be dealt with, or even if it should be dealt with. Some people were like, it's not my client, it's not my business, I'm not their supervisor, right? Someone else was like, uh, taking care of clients is always everyone's business. In the moment, you need to step in. Other people were like, you don't want to embarrass your colleague, but you want to make sure it gets taken care of, talk to them after the incident. So in some of the work that I've done with organizations, this is about the organizational culture too, is like, well, how can we, uh, first of all, agree, we have a shared understanding, we do not want to speak to clients in a way that's hurtful or abusive. And so then if so, what's our shared understanding about if we see a colleague uh, doing this, how we should deal with this? So sometimes having like some shared mechanism for that um, helps people to then have the courage to intervene, right? Um, so that's kind of on the systemic level. And then on the personal level, uh, this is sort of like an extension then of um, precepts around harming is then like, okay, so the first level is like you don't harm yourself. Right? And then there's a level about taking that further. is like, well, how about protecting others, protecting life? Right? And that's where, again, like you have to become uh, kind of creative and also uh, really start to tap into uh, your own intention to try to bring as appropriate a response as you can in. Right? And in each case, it might be actually different, like what you do in those cases. So it's challenging. It's not like cut and dry like that. Right? It also is good, though, for us to, uh, when we witness this from other people, to learn from it. So like what you were saying, like you see the, the pain of that. So on both sides. So meaning that we are aware of the harm that's done by harsh speech. So we're aware of the harm that's done on the other person. But also, that we're aware when we are ever in that space where we speak harshly to someone, uh, that we're actually in pain, that we're coming from delusion, that we're caught in hatred. You know? So in that way, like, we don't have to become as polarized and like, oh, the person I'm witnessing doing this is bad, right? And like, I'm good. You know? So just having some compassion actually for both helps in whatever intervention that you can do. Yes. Um, often I feel like when I'm being sarcastic, I'm trying to be funny about something. But I also notice that there's a lot of like, there's like an internal sort of tightness that happens. And usually when I'm more sarcastic for a longer period of time, it's usually because of some sort of like pain, some sort of like emotional or physical or something. So it's just really interesting to try and find like a balance of. Yeah, no, that's great that you noticed that. And uh, I think also sometimes with sarcasm, we don't want to be vulnerable to actually tap into the hurt or vulnerability that we have. And so we go to being like sarcastic or a little mean or something like that too. And that's also another one that's, it's very culturally accepted, right? To, uh, by and large, like sarcasm is a sort of a, uh, one form of humor. Um, but it's good to look at like what it feels like when you're doing that and also what it feels like uh, on the receiving end of that too. Right? 
So all of this is for exploration. So in case, case some of you are thinking like, wow, that's like the main thing that I do to be funny, right? Just look at that, you know, like pay attention, you know. It's not uh, uh, to condemn you, but to look at that, so, yeah. So my question initially is, what are we to do? For example, you said cultural. I don't, I don't speak for the whole um, country, but for example, Latins are very exaggerated. I know this because I grew up around them. And so it's kind of known that they exaggerate. They're very exciting, excited. So they gossip. And, but it's kind of the norm. They kind of know from one another. Um, so I don't know that there's pain involved in that. But I guess what are we to do if we, I don't want to say we know better because what do I know? But if you feel something strongly, to, is it said that Buddha um, recommends we say this is painful or not? You mean if someone else speaks to you in this way? Like if someone is sarcastic you, to you? You're in a reunion and everyone's very exaggerating. Is it our responsibility or your responsibility to say anything at all? Like that's exactly, you know, then kind of the attention's to you. And um, it's, it's tricky. Like when yeah. do you say things or when do you want to shift things? But in, in a sense, there's something in my mind that says, um, you know, not only you have to be the example you want to see in the world, as an example, but sometimes you have to say things, but I, I'm not certain if that's yeah. the right way. The primary thing that is pointing to from all of these uh, precepts around speech and the precepts in general is for us to pay attention to ourselves. Mm-hmm. So that's like really the number one thing. Because it's, it's very easy for us to point the fingers at other people, right? <laughs> and see all the ways in which other people are kind of messing up in the world and stuff. And it's much harder for us to actually take a, um, what do they call it, a... Um, uh, fearless moral inventory, or, you know, just like actually very honestly uh, pay attention to the patterns of our own speech and so on. And, you know, like you're saying, I think that it is the best thing to be an example, right? Because then when you are an example, then sometimes people actually get curious about you, you know. Sometimes people get curious about like why you are this way that you are. Like, oh, someone told a joke that was like a mean joke and like you didn't laugh, Right. And uh, so sometimes someone will get curious and be like, how come you didn't laugh at that, right? And then you could actually tell them. And then sometimes it helps people to consider it, right? It usually is unhelpful when we come from a sort of self-righteous place. (laughs) That usually doesn't uh, win over too many uh, friends and, (laughs) you know, converts. But it seems like a lot of times just trying to be a person of integrity, you know, is really uh, the best way to uh, go about this, really. And that's really the best place to put your energy, I think, also in, uh, in your practice, right? And then if there are people who you're close to, I think it is fair to talk to them about how the way that they interact with you affects you, you know, to actually have conversations with them about it. And if they're actually someone who is sort of interested in your relationship or interested in truth in some way, um, you know, they might be interested too. So this is where also like the teachings of the Dharma, you know, it's, it's actually such good fortune for us to encounter this, even to be able to consider this, right? Like, like oh, idle chatter, like whoever thinks about that, right? Like, why is that a problem, right? Uh, so, but it, it is actually really helpful to think about that. Like, well, what is the effect of uh, unnecessary speech on our minds? Like, what is the result of unnecessary speech in the world? What's the result of unnecessary speech on my own uh, psyche, and it's not a question that people pose very much. And 
uh, like I said, a lot of these teachings are like actually counter to the way that culture rolls, like Latin culture, American culture, you know, mainstream American culture, right? Like you turn on the TV, probably within half an hour you could catch like examples of all of these, right? Maybe 10 minutes, right? You don't have to change the channels too much. You just like <laughs> turn it on, right? Or actually, you know what? You can see this a lot as on um, radio shows. So I noticed like um, DJs, you know, like morning DJ, you know, you get a lot of like really uh, difficult speech patterns coming up, you know, that passes as entertainment. And uh, it's just like put out there, you know, all this stuff. Uh, and that's kind of the common way of things. So, idle chatter. What's wrong with that one? What does that even mean? No, I think it's a real distraction. It drives it. Now that I've gotten more into wise speech, and my husband will do a lot of idle chatter, and I cannot <laughs> participate in it anymore, um, because it's a distraction. It's a, it's a distraction from mind, being mindful. Hmm. Um, it's kind of filling the silence with stuff. Right, right. So that's one thing, is it's sort of filling the silence with stuff. So uh, once you start to settle your mind and settle your body, uh, you notice, even in your own uh, practice, right, like the chattering discursive mind, uh, it's like, why, what's going on with that, right? Like, uh, like, why is it just chattering away? I think, yeah, this is one of the ones I think that's um, the hardest to suss out, like what is idle chatter and what is not idle chatter, right? So the, the, the one around um, avoiding speaking what's false, you know, we've discussed how there are some differentiatings, but like telling a deliberate lie, you know, pretty much people know what that means, right? Abusive, harsh speech, you know, you kind of get a sense where the intention's coming, what that's like, uh, Gossip, slander. Actually, gossip, slander, there's a practice some people take up of saying, uh, I will not speak about anyone who's not present. Uh, period. Like, so that's, a, you know, you could try that and see how that is, right? But this one is one of the most subjective ones, right? So what is idle chatter? And I think even Bhikkhu Bodhi says this. It's, it doesn't mean that, particularly as lay people, that um, we can't talk to, other, to people about things that are like, the weather or something like that. But it's really like looking at the intention. So because sometimes you're talking about the weather, for example, and it really is a way of um, connecting, actually, with people. And uh, there's some amount of that that's sort of like social lubrication or I kind of think of it sometimes as the way like dogs wag their tail at each other, you know? It's like wag, 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 you know? So you're doing that sort of verbally at another human being, right? Um, who maybe you don't have some other deep connection to. And so it's just a little bit of a like, like, I'm okay, I like you, I'm friend, not enemy, you know, something like that, right? But it's good to pay attention to, like, how much of that do you need to do, right?
like when does that need to, how much of that do you need to do? When does that, you know, continue on? Also look at the motivation. So is there some fear of silence, for example? You know, uh, are we afraid of actually being quiet with each other in any way? Uh, is there a nervousness? I think a lot with idle chatter, there's like a nervousness behind it in some way, which is like a way of fear, right? Like not knowing what's going to happen if, it's, if I don't fill this up. Also, there's a sense of becoming, often. This, this sense of becoming, I was talking about, this creating, creation of self, you know, through this. And sometimes with idle chatter, it's like we're looking at the other person, like we're trying to make a certain impression, and so we're just kind of like spouting on and like watching them until it seems like that impression is made. But it's kind of like it's not made with this comma, it's not made with that comma, just, you know, keep it rolling, keep it rolling, you know. It's just funny to observe that. So observe when you're in a mode like this. And, and really, it's, it's kind of a koan. Like, what is idle chatter? Like, where is the line for me? Where is the line in this particular conversation? So, yeah. Um, I was at a retreat earlier where Sylvia Borstein came up with, I don't know if she came up with it, but she spoke about this great acronym. When you, when you find yourself babbling away, you, you, if, you, if you become aware of it, you can say to yourself, wait. And the wait stands for, why am I talking? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Bodhi uses the word amusement, amusement in, in this category. Mm. And I don't really know what, what that would be. Mm. Where would you draw the line? So, like, f- sure. Um, so the, um, the teachings for um, monks and nuns is like very high bar on this one. Uh, and so for monks and nuns, actually, um, what is considered idle chatter is um, many, many categories. So definitely anything related to entertainment, actually related to politics also. Like they're not supposed to talk about like kings and uh, feudal things and stuff like that. And um, so it goes on like list of many, many different subjects that they're not supposed to talk about, which basically leaves, when you look at all of that, the Dharma right? as the remaining topic for discussion. Right? And you could choose, actually, while you're on this retreat, if you want, to take that on, too, as a practice. Right? So be like, oh, what if I, I just chose to like, only talk about, when I talk to people, to talk about Dharma? Right? What would that be like if I did that for today or three days or something like that? Right? So I think it's like when, when there is idle chatter happening, is it actually just for like entertainment purposes? You know, is there a way in which we're like entertaining ourselves or others? You know? Like there's, uh, there's actually no purpose for it. It's not conveying information. It's not actually even um, creating social cohesion. It's not even like the useful wagging tail, small talk. Like it's just rambling on. This is one that probably it's easier for you to identify when someone else is doing it than when you're doing it. <laughs> so, you know, the WAIT acronym that you said. So probably like when the, there may be many times when you feel that when someone else is talking, like, why are you still talking to me? <laughs> but you could consider that it is also likely that someone might be thinking that sometimes when you're talking. So, <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so that just leads me to example. Um, what beyond technology might you be thinking in terms of amusements that are 
Right, right. So this actually comes to the um, second part of what I wanted to talk with you about. Because in, in uh, right speech, there are these different elements that we talked about. So abstaining from false speech, abstaining from harsh abusive speech, abstaining from gossip slander, uh, and then this, this abstaining from idle chatter. Part of what he's talking about that is paying attention to what you take in, too. Right? So here's the other side of communication, too, is listening. So there's the what you're saying, and then there's the how you're listening kind of thing. And what's the effect when you're listening? Like, what is true listening? What is actually wise listening? What is heartful listening? And can we actually do that? So I think along those, those lines, he's paying, saying, pay attention to what you actually take in uh, through media, too, as idle chatter. Like, if you have just the radio on in the background, or if you're taking a lot of news, or uh, even, like, trolling the web, Right. There's a more modern version that the Buddha did not have to deal with, but you know, like endless web surfing, like sort of taking in of idle chatter or engaging in uh, endless information seeking. Right. It's good to watch your mind when you're doing this. Usually, the basis of it is craving. It's like, you know, one more hit, one more hit. Right. You can tell this if suddenly your web page doesn't load, and you're like, you know, the <laughs> <laughs> this frustration. It's like, oh, it's not coming. And then. It seems all very innocent until it doesn't turn up as you wish it to, right? Then you can see there was craving driving that because it was like there's the suffering. Suffering has been born, right? From the slow DSL or something. So, yeah. The thing I really find amazing, I think it's generational because all the people that are, you know, in their early 20s and teens and even younger have Twitter and they're constantly, constantly in contact with other people. My granddaughter's 11 and her mother is 28, and they both sit around going like this all day long. And sometimes I think they're talking to each other, sitting next to each other, but they're using that device. And, and I tried to take that from my granddaughter one day. I said, oh, honey, put this away. She says, why? I said, I want to play cat. She says, oh, I can hold it in this hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is a whole new, uh, new world of communication. And I think sort of as a society, we're still learning to catch up with that and sort of how to be engaged with each other with that. So this also goes to the listening part, you know. So uh, being, I think it seems like more and more rare that people are actually able to truly just listen to each other, you know, without divided attention. So without actually like, oh, maybe I have a text message or maybe there's a voicemail or maybe there's someone else to talk to or something like that. Right? I actually think that mindfulness practice is the best training for this in a variety of ways. So first of all, because you're actually practicing paying attention to your own experience. If you can't pay attention to your own experience, if you can't direct your attention to pay attention to your own experience, likely you also cannot do that with someone else in some way. So it's helpful to notice when you get bored with your own experience and you're kind of looking for something else to, uh, to like tap into. You know. And notice it's just like as if you're talking to someone you know, at a party or something and they're looking over your sh- shoulder to see is like someone better coming in, right? Right? So if you're paying attention to your own experience, but then you're like, well, what's that guy doing over there? I wonder what's he doing. It's like, oh, come back. And it's a training, you know, the monkey mind, the monkey mind driven by delusion. It's just like going to go everywhere, right? So it's, it actually requires restraint. It requires uh, being aware, and it requires some discipline, you know, for us to actually come back, come back, come back, right? To ourselves, to connect with our own hearts and minds, and then also if we're talking to someone else, to connect with them. So you could notice, perhaps, you know, even in this period in which we have been 
uh, talking to each other a little bit, how sometimes when someone is talking, at the same time, you're actually formulating your response. Or as they're talking, you're kind of getting into this, this phase of like, how is this related to me? Or it's kicking off something in you that's like, oh, that just reminds me of this that happened to me. Right? So this is sort of the uh, conditioned patterning of the <laughs> sort of narcissistic, self-absorbed, you know, uh, delusionary self. And just like see it and have a sense of humor about it and really be humbled by it. You know, like this patterning is so deep and strong, right? And also, it's possible to train ourselves uh, to do better, basically. You know, we're able to train ourselves to actually really pay attention. And it's amazing that actually being able to listen to someone, you know, wholeheartedly, it doesn't cost any money to do that, you know. Uh, But it actually is so rare to actually get that kind of attention, to give that kind of attention, to give that kind, get that kind of attention, it's perhaps one of the greatest gifts that you will give to anyone who you meet when you leave retreat. You know, the extent to which like, you have been able to steady your mind and be able to actually pay attention. So much so that for some people it's actually uncomfortable and strange. You know, we're not used to that. Right? But it's such a beautiful thing you know, to be able to give. And actually to be able to give that too to whoever it is. So not just the important person, uh, not just to the person who is paying you to do that, if that's the case, right? Uh, not just the person who is like your boss, right? But even like someone who is sitting next to you on the airplane. Like what if we actually paid attention to them? Or what if we actually paid attention to someone who is the cashier at the store? You know, Like what if we actually really were able to see each other in this way? Right? Like it actually would be a, a different world, I think. You know, a different transformed world if that's possible. So I want us to actually do a little exercise um, that's around listening uh, and practice uh, listening from the heart and also noticing our own reactions to different things that might come up uh, for us while someone is saying something to us. So uh, I'd ask for help from my colleagues here. So if you don't mind to give out these papers to people. So everybody gets one stack of paper. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So each of these is uh, should be nine blank pieces of paper. And uh, what I want you to do with them is uh, you're going to write a sentence on each of these pieces of paper. So I want you to write three sentences that would be uh, something that you would like to hear from someone. So a sentence that would make you happy to hear it. Oh, right. Does everyone have pens? Does anyone need a pen, I guess? Oh, there there seem to be. All right, if someone needs a pen, raise your hand. And uh, some pen sharing. Okay, great. Okay. I have some more, too, if there's more people who need. These ones are not counted out, so you could ask them to count out nine pieces of paper. Yeah. Okay, so the instructions then. Um, 
So when you think of three sentences that you would be happy to hear from someone, say from a stranger, right? Three sentences that you would be, uh, that would be neutral. You know, eh, what, they could be just neutral ones like, you know, it is raining today or the floor is brown, whatever, right? Uh, and then three sentences that it would be hard to hear from someone. Okay. So write one sentence on each piece of paper. Yeah, so when someone's a stranger. And we are going to have someone else is going to actually read these to you. So make it something that you don't mind someone else reads to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because it's going to be someone you don't know. I mean, there will be someone here, basically, <laughs> who reads it to you. So. Um, it could be either one. Yeah, either one. It could be something specifically to you. So it's something, yeah, something that someone says to you that would be uh, difficult for you to hear. Something someone says to you that would be neutral. Um, it depends. Like, so if the thing that sets you off is like politics or something else, then that's fine. But if it's actually something about you, so it could be either one, right? Like if you're particularly attached to like your baseball team or something, then it could be about that. But, you know, for someone else that would be neutral, you guys can do this too? <laughs> okay. So this is like to hear, wouldn't like to hear, and neutral. Yep, that's right. And it's all subjective, right? So like I said, some, one person's neutral will be someone else's, you know, difficult, so, you know. On these papers, should we say which one it is, whether it's like neutral or... No, it's okay. <laughs> no, you don't have to say which one it is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, as long as, um, as long as you know yourself, it's fine. So just one on each paper, yeah. You mean about the thing that you'd like to hear them say? Yeah, correct. Yeah, as long as it's something that will make you happy, yeah.
someone is going to read these to you, right? I told you that, didn't I? Yeah, okay. Also implied is to write legibly. Are these just single sentences? Or are we supposed to go on? And single sentence. Single sentence is good. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if the other person understands. It's just for you to. Take another minute or two. If you have finished, you can just sit and attend to your experience.
So I'll describe what we're going to do with these. So I'm going to get, have you get into pairs. And you're going to pair off with someone who, um, maybe you, who you haven't talked to here yet, right? Who you don't know. And uh, you're going to exchange little stacks of paper. And you could tell the person if you would like the stack to be read in order, in case you read it in order. I mean, you wrote it in order of like happy, neutral, unhappy. Or if you would like it shuffled for the <laughs> full random experience. And uh, you're going to sit across from each other, and then uh, we'll go, say, one at a time, and the person will read uh, one of the statements to you, uh, as if they're, like, saying that to you. Uh, And then I want you to just notice what your reaction is. So is there any reaction in your body? Is there any reaction in your heart? Is there any reaction in your mind? Right. And allow a little time for that statement to sort of land, whatever it is, whether it's uh, positive, negative, uh, hurtful, whatever. And then when the person who's received is ready, they could like maybe like nod or something like that, and then you could say the next one to them. And then, again, like allow a little bit, notice your reaction, if there's any reaction, right, and so on, right. So for the person who's reading them, um, you know, try and do it like as realistically as possible. Um, and, uh, and just allow enough time for the person to like, feel whatever their reactions are. And then when you finish going through those nine, then you'll switch, and then the other person will get to uh, have the same experience. Yeah? Uh, and yeah, you could like, spread out enough that there's enough space so you're not um, hearing everybody else's, too. So any questions about those directions? It's clear? All right. Um, and I think it'll take like 10 to 15 minutes to do this. Um, and no, Sally's thinking it will take longer, shorter, shorter, she thinks. Okay, we will see. <laughs> so, uh, um, and then you can, after, first of all, let each other, you know, go through both sequences, and then you could talk about what it was like a little bit too. Yeah? Okay. So find a partner, someone you haven't talked to um, so far. Yes, you could even cross the aisle to the other section if you wish. Radical. Mixing of sections here. If you need a partner, please raise your hand. Um, Let's see, raise your hand if you need a partner. I thought there wasn't even a... Raise your hand if you need a partner and then find each other. Someone, this guy, the gentleman here. Yes, I think, perhaps. Beautiful, everyone is paired off, Okay. If you don't know each other's names, you could find out each other's names. You can just decide who's going first amongst yourself. I will not tell you. And you can say mix them up or do them straight up too. All right. Has everyone decided who's going first? Uh, uh, The last part? Oh, I said whoever wants to go first can go first. So one person go with all nine, then the other person go with all nine, then you could talk about how it went. All right, so you can begin.
So if you've run through all of the cards, both of you, then you can talk about what the experience was like, like what you noticed in your body, in your mind, in your heart, etc. Yeah.
All right, so did everyone get a chance to go and talk about it and stuff? Yeah? Yes. The people closest to me are listening. That's good. (laughs) All right, so one further instruction for you now, if I might have your attention, is um, that I would like you then, so within this... um, Within this area of, of speech, as we've talked about speech and also actually listening, there's many different areas. And for everyone, there's particular areas that might be areas for attention, right? So it could be that like for one person, it's like, oh, you know, that gossip slander thing, I get sucked into that. Or someone else, it's like, oh, exaggeration or sarcasm. Um, or for someone else, it's around um, like the idle chatter thing or something like that. So I want you to come up with... Uh, say, three, three things that would be uh, helpful for you to pay attention to around speech. So three particular things for you to pay attention to around speech. Right? If you can think of three. If there's only two, that's okay. And then also around listening. So anything that you learned from this exercise around listening, like about your reactions and so on. So some guidelines for yourself that you can continue to practice, even during this retreat and after, that will help you to actually uh, be grounded as a listener. Right? So strategies for you that you want to try. So it could be something like um, connect with my heart or feel my hands or connect with my body. Um, Or it could be uh, some resolution that you want to take around listening. Or it could be about eye contact or, you know, anything like that. So um, three things that might be tailored things around the precept around speech that you want to practice and then three things that will help you to be a wise and present listener. Okay. So you can take a moment to that, jot those down. Hopefully there's room on your index cards there. And then you could actually share them with your partner. So you can share them with your partner just so somebody else knows what you're resolving to do. Yeah? So take a couple minutes, you could do that. Yeah, so three things around speech. Um, like particular things that you want to pay attention to around speech, and then three things around listening that will help you. So just stay grounded and be a good listener. That's it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can write them all on one piece of paper. <laughs> you don't need separate papers for this one. It could be avoid interrupting. could be relaxing your body. It could be to avoid creating a response while someone else is speaking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.